0: Hello and welcome to the Oncology Podcast, an Australian Oncology Perspective. For more info and to sign up to our weekly newsletter, visit our website oncologynews.com.au. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the second episode of the Oncology Journal Club. The Oncology Journal Club is delivering oncology news differently with a review of the latest papers by a team of expert contributors, as well as coverage of what's going on at key scientific meetings. Today's episode is hosted by Professor Eva Segalov from Monash University. Eva is a medical oncologist and director of medical oncology at Monash Health in Melbourne, Australia. She is joined by Dr. Craig Underhill from Aubrey Wodonga and Professor Hans Prennan from Antwerp, Belgium. Links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes, as are the bios. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to our second edition of the Oncology Journal Club. Just to remind you, this is a podcast that will cover key papers in oncology that are released within the last little while, so that we can talk to our experts about their key findings We'll also have a short bite section that covers papers with key messages that we can deliver super quickly. And today we have a focus on what's hot at ASCO and what you shouldn't miss. So once again, I'm joined by two experts from across the globe, Professor Hans Prennan. Hi, Hans, how have you been?
0: Hi Eva, doing really fine, thanks
1: and once again the wonderful dr craig underhill
2: hi Eva, how are you going
1: i'm good and hopefully my sound is much better this week and we'll go from strength to strength and if you have a paper that you'd like us to discuss or if you'd like to be one of my guests on the oncology journal club so that i can throw one of these two clowns <laughs> off then please contact me through the oncology podcast we have got two really interesting papers to discuss today. The first one, Hans will tell us the key findings, a practice-changing trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Imbrave 150 trial of atezolizumab plus bevacizumab in unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma.
0: Thank you, Eva. So as you stated, I think it's really a practice-changing study And why is this? Uh, We know that patients with unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma have a very bad prognosis. And we have actually until now two first-line options. This is sorafenib and levatinib. Uh, As you know, they have been compared in the REFLECT study, which is a non-inferiority study. And actually, the outcome was the same with a little bit higher response rate with levatinib, but no difference in overall survival. So how to choose between lemvatinib, sorafenib. So the side effects are a bit different. So lenvatinib gives more hypertension because it's more a VGF inhibitor. While we know the side effects of sorafenib are more hand-foot syndrome and diarrhea. So in later lines, we have now regorafenib, cabozantinib. We have ramucirumab, We also have nivolumab, pembrolizumab. So we have a lot of drugs in the later lines and only two in first line. Why would then the combination of anti-VGF and checkpoint inhibition work? So the theory is that anti-VGF therapies, they reduce VGF-mediated immune suppression. So there's a clear rationale for this. So this Imbrave 150 study is a global study. It's a phase 3 randomized trial that compared atezolizumab plus bevacizumab. And it compared it with sorafenib in first-line unresectable HCC. There was a two-to-one randomization, and there were two co-primary endpoints, which are overall survival and progression-free survival. There were about 300 patients in one group, about 150 in the other one. And i the results were overall survival at 12 months was 67% for the combo atezolizumab versus 54% in the other group, serofinib. Also, significant difference in PFS. And the hazard ratio for that was 0.58. So what does it mean? It's actually quite spectacular, I think. So it doesn't give that much side effects. The most important side effects in the group was hypertension in 15% of the patients, which is due to the bevacizumab. But for the rest, it's very well tolerated with very good outcomes. However, there are a few limitations of this study. It's, it's an open-label study. Otherwise, the patients needed two placebo infusions. And furthermore, it's a specific patient population which was child SPC1, so they had a preserved liver function. And they had also a decreased risk of variceal bleeding because they needed upfront evaluation and treatment of the varices if they were there. So it's a specific group because they didn't want to take that much risks with a combination of an anti anagenic agent with a checkpoint inhibitor. So I think, Eva, this is really a practice-changing study, and a lot of patients in the future might be able to get this combination once it's approved.
1: Thanks, Hans. We've been hearing about this promise of the enhancement of checkpoint inhibition by anti-VEGF agents for some time. Do you think there's potential for this to be a class effect?
0: It, it can be a class effect, but the main problem in HCC is the different subgroups there. It's a so much heterogeneous group, and therefore we have so many drugs that give some activity, but until now not really high, and we don't know yet in which group we have to give which drug. So for example, the ones that can be treated with up in second line, or the ones with alpha-futoprotein, higher than 400 nanograms per milliliter. So why specific this subgroup, nobody really knows. And I think in the future, what we will have to do is to find out which drug we will have to give for which patient.
1: It's interesting, though, that they did exclude people with a viral load from hep B or hep C, although it appears that you could have cirrhosis as a result of these agents and be included if you were not positive on viral screening.
0: That's, that's, that's 100% correct indeed. So again, it's a subgroup, it has some exclusion. So I think in the future, not all of the patients will be able to get this combination.
1: And there are some interesting results not yet presented here, but they did stratify for country of origin with Asia versus rest of world. And also interesting was the fact that they had actually double the responses by two different criteria.
0: Yeah, again, We see this in many studies that in Asia, they often respond differently to combinations. And this is the case here as well. And this is not only due to the geographic location, of course, but also probably the cause of the tumor. And so if it's more caused by, let's say, obesity rather than by hepatitis, it could lead to a different uh, subgroup of HCC. So again... We, Asians are often treated a bit differently than the rest of the world.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Hans. Uh, and we'll see how quickly this uh, comes into routine practice. We're going to move now to an open-label, multi-center, single-arm phase two trial of neoadjuvant atezolizumab and chemotherapy in patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer, published in Lancet Oncology online May 7. Now, Craig, this is a paper where 39 patients were assessed for eligibility, but only 30 were enrolled. So why are you bringing this forward as a key paper for our Oncology Journal Club?
2: Well, Eva, I think it's just an interesting study. It's obviously not practice changing with 30 patients. But it adds to the body of evidence in lung cancer and probably more broadly in the concept of neoadjuvant treatment that this is something that I think we're going to see more studies in the future and probably a move towards more neoadjuvant treatment in many different cancer types. We're seeing it already in, obviously, in rectal cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, pancreas cancer and others. So I think this concept of giving a short, course of effective systematic agents up front is something we'll see more of in the future. So this was a small study, as you mentioned, of 30 evaluable patients across three sites in US centres. Patients were given a short course of neoadjuvant treatment, treatment, which consisted of two to four cycles of combination of atezolizumab, paclitaxel, and carboplatin. So if patients without disease progression after two cycles went on to have four cycles, they then went on to have surgery. Um, so these were all patients who have thought after staging to be resectable up front. These weren't marginally resected, resectable tumours. These were all patients that would have gone straight to surgery anyway. The major endpoint was major pathological response. All up, there was a total of the 30 patients available, 57% had a major response. Now, to put that into context, the normal expected response rate for upfront chemotherapy alone is around 5% pathological complete response rate. So this was quite provocative data. It adds to two studies previously published with either checkpoint inhibitor alone, or the combination of a checkpoint inhibitor and chemotherapy. Several other papers presented at meetings with, again, interesting, provocative data where patients with a short course of upfront treatment can have a significant number have major responses with tolerable side effects. And one of the concerns from one of our surgical colleagues, bless their souls, is that if you give the treatment upfront, it means people would miss the opportunity to have surgery and in this particular paper, that wasn't the case. So interesting data in the neoadjuvant space.
1: And it ties in with the data that Hans presented last week. So if you haven't heard that, go back and download our Oncology Journal Club podcast one. But I think we really are moving towards a world of neoadjuvant therapy with immunotherapy in many tumour types. And this will be practised Pathway changing in many situations. Craig, we're yet to prove that path CR uh, or pathological response correlates with DFS in lung cancer. What are your predictions there?
2: Yeah, well, it, uh, I mean, it was postulated that that was a surrogate in this study, and I guess in the future. If that's validated in bigger studies and randomized studies that it is an acceptable surrogate, then that will accelerate new treatments into practice. So remember in the colon cancer space, one of the most significant papers in the last decade was a FDA did an audit of adjuvant colon cancer studies and showed that the three-year disease-free survival was a, a surrogate for overall survival with further follow-up. And so that meant that people had the certainty that results could be seen sooner and translate into advances in the clinic. So I think, as you say, we're probably going to see more of the move towards neoadjuvant treatment.
1: So Craig, one of the advantages of neoadjuvant therapy is that it usually means we can give less or even no adjuvant chemotherapy. And in this patient group, of course, Uh, there's also the issue of the role of radiation uh, following surgery. So just in this small study, did they give any detail about what happened to subsequent adjuvant therapy? I'm just checking here that you've read the paper fully. (laughs) No, they
2: didn't give any details about that either. But the use of radiotherapy after surgery is only ever done in highly selected patients, usually those with Sometimes with into disease it's around quite a controversial area. It's not something that's often done. So that you know, I know that you don't really treat lung cancer, so you've probably possibly possibly learnt something this evening. Eva. So thanks
1: for educating me. <laughs> Craig, there were some post hoc analyses, small numbers in this trial, but what did they tell us?
2: Well, the interesting one was probably about pd one levels because in the past, uh, lung cancer is one of the few cancers where pd one expression on the tumour influences selection of treatment in first-line patients. But in this paper, there was no correlation, small numbers, but no correlation between pd one expression on the tumour and likely response.
1: So that... Uh, tr- Tricky question continues, the role of PDL one by agent and by treatment scenario.
2: That's right. But well, again, with small small numbers, so I'm not sure that we can draw too many conclusions from this one particular study. And obviously future studies would stratify for probably over fifty percent P one expression or not.
1: Well thanks, Craig. I think that is a really important paper to have bought us. And now for some quick bites, a selection from me of some key papers published in the last short while. The first one is a paper published in JAMA Oncology online May the 14th, entitled Low-Dose Erlotinib Treatment in Elderly or Frail Patients with EGFR Mutation-Positive Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And this was a trial... Uh, within the Southwest Oncology Group and it enrolled frail patients from 21 Japanese institutions. And basically these patients were given only 50 milligrams per day of allotinib for four weeks and then they could be increased. So 80 patients were enrolled. They had a very good disease control rate of 90%. And the conclusion is that low dose elotinib appears safe and effective in elderly or frail patients with EGFR mutation positive non-small cell lung cancer. And it could be a valid treatment option. The second paper is the impact of age at diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer on overall survival in the real world ESME metastatic breast cancer cohort published in the breast very recently. The ESME cohort is a database from France that captures most of the national cohort of breast cancer. And they were looking at the question of whether patients who present with metastatic breast cancer and are younger have a worse prognosis as they do for patients who present with early breast cancer. And basically the conclusions were that they don't, younger patients don't have a worse prognosis. It is influenced by molecular subtype with younger patients having more HER2 positive disease, but also more treatment options. So that's some data that hopefully will help you with your patients, young patients who present with metastatic breast cancer who ask you whether they're worse off because of their age. The next very brief paper is the safety and efficacy of immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with cancer living with HIV and this is a paper published in JCO oncology practice on May 17th bottom line again is that they report a case report of a patient with deficient MMR colorectal cancer who is successfully treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors so this paper presents a case report of a HIV positive male with deficient MMR colorectal cancer who gets a very good response as expected and no interaction with his HIV medication. As you know, we're moving into immune checkpoint inhibitor trials in anal cancer where there are a considerable number of patients with HIV And we know that HIV patients do get a number of cancers, probably quite a different spectrum if they have low CD4 counts versus higher counts. So it's good to see that we will now open up immune checkpoint trials, hopefully to patients who were initially excluded.
2: Yeah, just it's interesting. That was a case report, right? So there was actually a a publication in JAMA last year, which was a review that showed, in fact, it does appear to be very safe to to give immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with advanced cancer and HIV. So the drugs are active. There's no increased risk of high-grade immune response adverse events. The HIV remains suppressed and the CD4 counts actually go up, so it does appear that, although they're usually excluded from all our clinical trials, that uh, it's safe to give these drugs.
1: Thanks, Craig. The fourth paper is entitled Mammography Screening, Reduced Rates of Advanced and Fatal Breast Cancers, Results in 549,091 Women. The bottom line of this paper is they used a new statistical method to determine the impact of mammography screening based on the date of diagnosis rather than the date of death because, as you know, the date of death from breast cancer can reflect a diagnosis in a number of years before that. So, using this new methodology And a large data set, this paper confirms that screening mammography actually reduces rates of advanced breast cancer and also fatal breast cancer. And now a paper that I've bought specifically for you, Craig... It's called The Effect of Viewing Disney Movies During Chemotherapy on Self-Reported Quality of Life Amongst Patients with Gynecological Cancer. Where do you
2: find these papers, Eva? Where do you find them?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason I say it's important is that I thought this is something that you can implement quickly in your cancer centre without a lot of increased funding. So that's a win. Now what they did was they randomized patients, 56 women who were having chemotherapy to either watch a Disney movie or not during their chemotherapy. It was one movie per cycle. So the interesting part of this paper were that eight movies were available. It was a study done in Austria. So all the movies were in German. And the paper says in the methodology, we deliberately chose older movies because they were more likely to evoke memories of the past and have a slower storyline than newer Disney movies. Furthermore, movies with particularly sad scenes like Dumbo and Bambi were excluded. Now, I'm not sure how methodologically rigid this is if they're excluding these key movies. They also said that all selected stories are about strong main characters who are curious, faithful and brave and who share in the community life with high moral values and importantly have a happy ending. And they found that indeed people who watched these movies compared to the group who did not watch it had improved quality of life. So there you go, something that we can all take back to our cancer centres and probably we should definitely not be watching racy movies with sad endings during chemotherapy. Thank
2: you, Eva. So that's really fascinating, that last one.
1: Thanks, Craig. So, Craig, I uh, see on the screen that you've uh, started playing Bambi, but if I can just bring your attention back. We're just going to run through our recommendations for the upcoming ASCO meeting. As you know, this is going to be all online. Many sessions will be released next Friday. And then there are some live sessions through Saturday and Sunday, That'll be good for you, Hans, but I don't know what, Craig, you'll be doing at 3 a.m. Australian time during the plenary.
2: Not watching ASCO. I will watch the replay.
1: So there are the options to watch sessions live or pre-recorded. And many of us are getting together on a Zoom to watch it together and talk each other through the results. So that's a fun hint if you're thinking... Maybe we'll
2: broadcast that.
1: We could broadcast it. The comments may be a bit rude. But it's a fun hint to get together with some mates still and watch ASCO together, because otherwise you tend to just skip to the results slide and uh, really miss some of the detail. And we'll be giving you a chance to hear the highlights in our next Oncology Journal Club straight after ASCO, including a guest appearance by Natasha Leal, the first author of the pivotal lung cancer paper being presented in the plenary. So over to you, Hans, Can you tell us what we should watch out for at ASCO in the GI stream?
0: Yes, Eva. So I looked through all the uh, oral abstract sessions and the poster presentations. And as every year, they split between colorectal and the rest of GI. So I will focus first on the colorectal abstracts. There is one which I think is very, very interesting, but i come back to this in a few seconds. First, what they did is they updated the results of the BEACON study. As you know, this is in BRAB mutant patients, second or third line, where they can get either a doublet with ancorafenib-cetaximab, a triplet where they added binimetinib, or a chemo arm where you give irinotecan and cetaximab. Very briefly, they saw the overall survival in the doublet and the triplet was much higher than in the chemo plus cetaximab arm. It was 9.3 months in the doublets, 9.3 in the triplets, and 5.9 in the chemo arm. Is this novel? I don't think. It it just confirms what we already know from the Beacon study. Then they also present, again, the final results of the IDEA studies, which is the 3 versus 6 months adjuvants. And briefly, I can say there were no new conclusions. The study I find interesting, but it raises still some questions, is the phase 2, 3 trial of giving Folfox after hepatectomy versus hepatectomy alone. So we know in liver meds, when you do surgery, it's still under debate whether you should give adjuvant, if you can call it this way, chemotherapy, yes or no. So what they did is they included 300 patients randomized between giving chemo after hypotectomy or surgery alone, and they saw a difference in disease-free survival after three years, 52% versus 41 But what is really interesting or striking is that the five-year overall survival was actually better in the group that didn't receive adjuvant chemo. So 70% in the chemo arm and 83 in the surgery arm. So the conclusion of the authors is there's still no proof of benefit of adjuvant chemo. I think this study raises a lot, lot of questions. So I'm really looking forward to uh, see how they will present this. The only study which for me you have to remember is this one. It's the RAPIDO trial. So the RAPIDO trial is a trial where in rectal cancer, where they give short course radiotherapy followed by chemotherapy in high-risk, locally-advanced tractal cancer. So we heard in the previous podcast and in this podcast that more and more we're moving towards neoadjuvant therapy. So this strategy, they give patients radiotherapy short course, followed by KPOX or Folfox, and they compared versus long course chemoradio, and then adjuvant KPOX or Folfox. Not all centers gave adjuvant therapy in this case, so it was up to the centers, but the results showed it was 920 patients, pathological complete response 27% in the group that received full neoadjuvant therapy versus 14% in the other group. And what is even more interesting is that these patients that got the total neo-adjuvant approach, they had a low, lower distant metastasis or local regional failure at three years. So I think The Rapido trial could be praxis changing. Let's head back to the non colorectal group. I just highlight a few of the studies that will will be presented, not all of them. So, first one is in esophageal cancer with HER2 overexpression. The ones which are not metastatic, so the locally advanced, they are treated with chemoradiotherapy. And I think a lot of centers use now carboplatin paclitaxel, so the cross schedule. And what they did is they randomized patients with HER2 overexpression in esophageal cancer to classical CROSS plus or minus traltuzumab. Briefly, the study was negative, there was no improvement in DFS. In locally advanced gastric cancer, the standard of treatment in a lot of places in the world is now perioperative FLOT, and what they did in this study was to give perioperative FLOT plus or minus ramusirumab. It's they only present the results of the phase two part because it's a phase two three trial, and what they found was there was an improvement in R0 resection. So eighty-three in the flots alone versus a ninety-seven percent R0 in the Flot plus ramucirumab. I think this is promising, but we have to wait until the phase three data will be presented. And finally, there was also a study in gastric Osefagy- patients with flots plus or minus trastuzumab and pertuzumab in the HER2-positive ones. So again, it's, these studies are all in locally advanced treatments. They present the results of the phase 2 part. This was also a phase 2, 3 study. And they showed more pathological complete response when you combine flots with trastuzumab and pertuzumab. Again, for me, it's promising. We have to wait the phase 3 data. But I think at ASCO, they will hopefully put all these results next to each other to see how do we treat locally advanced esophageal and gastric cancer.
1: So a very good year for GI and ASCO.
0: Yes, I think there are a few novel studies and I think, as I mentioned, I think the RAPIDO trial for me, I know you're also a big fan of giving neoadjuvant therapy, so I really believe in this approach uh, giving the total treatment neoadjuvant.
1: So now over to you, Craig. Craig... Craig, can you turn Bambi (laughs) off? Craig, what are you going to watch at ASCO?
2: Eva, I'm going to watch quite a number of things at ASCO, I think, because that's one of the nice things about it being online this year. But what I wanted to just focus on right now is the Lung and the GU papers. I think they're, again, going to be some quite interesting data presented for people to watch out for. So in the lung session, we'll I have two oral sessions, one in small cell lung cancer, and mesothelioma, and the other in non-small cell lung cancer. But so in the small cell papers, it seems to be that we may possibly reinforce new standards of care with small cell lung cancer, which is great. There were some very promising results in phase two studies in mesothelioma, which I think will potentially lead to a move towards the use of checkpoint inhibitors up front, and there's some uh, a big phase three study opening in Australia uh, soon in that field. There was some interesting results in targeted therapies. So in particular, an anti-HER2 treatment for HER2 overexpressing non small cell lung cancer. That's one of the one to two percenters in adenocarcinoma and squamous cell cancers. And it sort of an unmet need in those patients with that particular subtype of advanced lung cancer. And in the non-small cell lung cancer space, several studies in the IO field that may help us work out in the first-line setting which combination or not of treatment to give up front. And as you mentioned earlier, we hope to have Natasha Leal on our post-ASCO podcast who I'll interview and we will hopefully have a useful discussion about any practice-changing papers presented in the lung session.
1: Fantastic, Craig. So lots of good data there. And how about for GU?
2: So some interesting things coming across in GU. An adjuvant study with checkpoint inhibitors in bladder cancer. We know in relapsed bladder cancer, it's a very active drug. But unfortunately, this first look at an adjuvant study was a negative study. Longer follow-up of practice-changing study, which was pembrolizumab-axinitinib versus sunitinib, which has helped to find probably the most active frontline regimen that we have, and longer follow-up showing superior results again and survival in that combination. Some interesting studies in renal cancer with some sequencing. Really, we're trying to answer the question here about do all patients require combination treatment upfront or can they be sequenced? Uh, or can we select patients to give single agent checkpoint inhibitor rather than combination? So that's, again, some interesting papers for people who treat renal cancer. And in the prostate cancer space, this will be an interesting study for the Australian audience. This was a study conducted in Australia by the ANZUP Cooperative Group in a small number of centres. This was a study comparing PSMA radio-labeled Lutate in men with advanced prostate cancer and randomization between the radiolabeled treatment versus cabazitaxel. So early follow-up, but it suggested a higher rate of PSA response and improved disease-free survival. The overall survival data remains very immature, acceptable toxicity and a lower rate of grade 3, 4 toxicity for the men receiving the labelled isotope versus cabazitaxel. So in that space, it'll be interesting to see with mature data what happens for men beyond this treatment because of some of the concern in the past has been about giving radiation and then the ability to give subsequent lines of treatment and then marrow to stand there. So some interesting data in the genitourinary space as well as in the lung space EVA. There's another one Eva. So another provocative uh, paper that I think will get people talking was an oral GnRH receptor antagonist that may replace the subcutaneous drugs that we give now. So that would be a bit of a sea change in terms of the need for patients to come into clinics and have subcutaneous depot injections. They may be able to take a once daily tablet at home. So that will be, this is called the HERO study. H-E-R-O, so I think that'll be of interest to people when that's presented.
1: Great, and we'll list all the abstract numbers and links on the Oncology Podcast website. And what'll be interesting at ASCO this year is you won't have to choose between concurrent sessions because sometimes it's hard to be in Hall A and D at the same time for things you want to see. So some quick hints for sessions that caught my eye. Obviously, the plenary, we've got two large maintenance studies, one a neurothelial cancer and one in lung. We have Keynote 177, looking at single-agent pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy up front, so first-line metastatic colorectal cancer in patients who have a deficient mismatch repair. No secret that that's supposedly a very positive study. And the other major abstract that we hear is very positive is the ozomertinib adjuvant study the adora study uh, where that leading oncology journal the financial review has reported that this trial was stopped much earlier than expected for overwhelming efficacy so just some others to watch out for there's quite a lot in the geriatric oncology space including a randomized controlled trial Uh, performed here in Victoria uh, and many other trials looking at the importance of geriatric oncology assessments. There's some new targeted agents, selpacatinib, shown in the libretto study looking at RET-mutated either lung or thyroid cancers that we know has led to the FDA registration of this drug. We've got an exciting breast oral session with some large adjuvant HER2 studies, the five-year follow-up of the MINDACT study, looking at the predictive value of Mammaprint in determining who may or may not need adjuvant chemotherapy. We've got Keynote 355 in the metastatic breast section, looking at PEMBRO with various different chemotherapy partners. And we've got another TAMEL study looking at collaborative palliative and oncology care intervention to improve communication about end-of-life care for patients with metastatic breast cancer, certainly an area of need. In gynae, we've got the SOLO2 trial, which has been known for some time to significantly improve PFS in patients with germline BRCA-mutated ovarian cancer treated with the PARP inhibitor Olaparib. Now we've got the overall survival data, a stunning 12.9 month extension in overall survival, hazard ratio of 0.74. There's some data looking at IOs in anaplastic thyroid cancer, rare, but always very difficult to treat and traumatic because of its uh, rapid uh, progress. And finally of interest to me was an abstract, looking at uh, the value of quitting smoking once you're diagnosed with lung cancer, basically showing that it's never too late. Uh, You get a improved overall survival and lung cancer specific survival anytime you quit. So a good message to give our patients yeah. where we've often been a little bit nihilistic, saying you've already got lung cancer, there's no point quitting now. Yeah.
2: I actually told someone that today, Eva, who's still smoking while well on his post chemo radiotherapy I.O.
1: Yes, these patients are living a lot longer, so it now really is very relevant. So that brings us to the end of another Oncology Journal Club. And I hope that the trials have been of interest and the evaluation and commentary has been helpful and stimulating. uh, And also that our pre-ASCO preview will encourage you to listen to not only the sessions that you're already going to listen to, but some of the other sessions as well. And if all else fails and all you've learned from this is that you should show the little mermaid during chemotherapy, well, (laughs) at least we've made some advances. So thank you very much, Hans, for joining us once again.
0: Thank you, Eva, for hosting. It was fun as always.
1: Thank you, Craig, very much. Oh,
2: it's my absolute pleasure, Professor Segalov.
1: And we'll see you all again for number three key papers from asco
0: you've been listening to the oncology podcast if you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe head over to our website oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter thanks for listening